भद्रम कर्णे शृणुयाम देवा भद्रम पश्येक्षजत्रा स्थिरंगयीतुष्टवागंसस्तनु व्यशेम देवित यदायु स्वस्ति न इंद्रो वृद्धश्रवा स्वस्ति न पूषा विश्वेदा स्वस्ति नस्ताक्ष्यो अरिष्टनेमी स्वस्ति नो बृहस्पतिर्दा ओं शातिशाशा Um, so, yesterday, in the fourth chapter, we were discussing verses eighty-five, eighty-six, where he, where Gaudapada speaks about the results of being enlightened, and how the virtues. He talks about the humility of the enlightened person, vipranam vinaya. this is the humility the modesty of the enlightened person the tranquility under all circumstances the self control he says about damaha control self control um so all the saintly qualities which we see in enlightened persons they manifest naturally in the uh, uh, enlightened one in the jivan mukta now this reminded me yesterday i thought i'd bring it up today before we proceed um i came across a paper in our one one of our buddhist courses at the harvard divinity school where they were discussing different models of enlightenment you might be surprised to know that professors in harvard are studying enlightenment but they are <laughs> so how do different tradition not different traditions in buddhism so the different ways they speak about enlightenment how is it described so they say there are two different distinct ways two distinct ways and both of these ways we see the in gaudapada so the two distinct ways are one is um epistemological it is you can call it a paradigm shift model so i thought till now i was a body mind and now i'm enlightened i realize oh i am always this awareness in which a body mind appears in the world appears but this is a huge shift i really it's not something just i know i realize it it becomes a living reality just as this i am this being this biological being uh, this was an evident truth for me earlier before vedanta now after enlightenment it becomes an evident truth for me that i am this unlimited awareness this is called a paradigm shift it changes your entire world view self view world view completely so this is one way of enlightenment it ha- happens um and this is the way actually gaudapada has been talking about it all throughout so from the very beginning you will see so from thinking of yourself as the waker now you think of yourself or you know yourself to be the turiya the the witness consciousness the other model of enlightenment is um what is called as the ethical manifestation model the ethical manifestation model is an enlightened being is supposed to be far better than us happier deeply peaceful all loving full of love and joy and compassion and uh, uh, you know perfect control no anger or greed or lust uh, so all of these saintly qualities are expressed maximally uh, so this is called the expression of the buddha nature in uh, uh, buddhism 
So there are two models. Do you see the two models? One is you realize in Advaita Vedanta, you realize that you are Brahman or Turiya. So this is paradigm shift. Not body-mind, but Turiya. Not mortal, but immortal. Not limited, but unlimited. And the other one is, you express all these divine qualities in your life. In your thought, in your speech, in your activities. They, they manifested you. Now think about Swami Vivekananda's definition of religion. Religion is the manifestation of the divinity already within us. So, you can see, which model is he talking about? He's talking about the second one, the ethical manifestation model. And Sri Ramakrishna emphasized it, that what we realize must also be expressed in our life, in our behavior. It's not enough to say that you know something, you must be able to live it um, in your life. So, enlightenment, it's not either or, enlightenment means both of them. There is a paradigm shift. And there is this expression of wonderful qualities. Um, this is Jivan Mukti. The goal of Advaita Vedanta, freedom while living in this body, or while this body lives, the erstwhile Jiva who was in ignorance is now there, free, in this life itself. So this Jivan Mukti means this expression, manifestation of these divine qualities naturally. One more point and we'll move on. I think Girish uh, had asked this question and others too have at, on occasion asked this question that is, does this happen instantaneously or does it take time? You sometimes speak about it as a flash, as uh, before and after. So the answer is again both. The paradigm shift, that happens in a flash. Yes, one may not know, go from not knowing anything about Vedanta to reading about Vedanta uh, to understanding intellectually what's going on. But then there comes a point, very clear point, You'll, we will know when it happens to us, when it's a clear, clear breakthrough. It is so powerful, it will be the most powerful thing that has ever happened in our lives. The most profound thing that has ever happened or will ever happen in our lives. And another characteristic is, once that happens, you will see clearly see the difference between understanding something intellectually and uh, that breakthrough. That breakthrough, another thing that will happen is that breakthrough will never go away. It will be there effortlessly. Just as right now we effortlessly feel we are this body and mind, then you will feel effortlessly that you are the theory of the pure consciousness. So that is a breakthrough which happens. Before that, of course, before that breakthrough, it is preceded by study and reflection and meditation, all of that. That takes time. Okay. Ethical manifestation. The ethical manifestation, the manifestation of these divine qualities of love and compassion and self-control and purity um, in thought and word and deed, all of these qualities, we have been practicing them. These take time. We have been practicing them earlier when nobody comes to enlightenment suddenly. Uh, so we have been practicing them earlier and they have slowly come into our lives. So we become good people, very good people. And after enlightenment, we keep on expressing these things. Earlier they were practices and now what Gaurapada is saying, these are natural expressions of, of what you know yourself to be. If you are the Turiya, then how would you live your life in this body and mind? You would live, live a wonderful life, a peaceful, tranquil, um, absolutely relaxed, uh, caring, feeling this oneness with everybody and express, expressing compassion and love, uh, non-violence, holding on to the truth at all costs. These all things will come naturally naturally to you. 
but that also takes time the ethical manifestation continues before enlightenment before that paradigm shift the ethical manifestation is there because we are practicing it without that one cannot be spiritual we are being moral and ethical on purpose and after enlightenment after that paradigm shift we are still doing the same thing but now it's a very natural expression of what we realize ourselves to be yeah okay moving on now in the 87th verse onwards two verses gaurapada takes us back to the basics the first chapter he repeats the teaching here in a couple of verses the the central teaching the what you take away the core teaching from the entire mandokya what is the core teaching that look at your life look at yourself you have four aspects three of which you know and the fourth one which we are going to teach you the three which you know are your waking dreaming and deep sleep and by a consideration of these three by an examination of these three which we shall do together the mandukya tells us we will discover the fourth one which is the reality which is called the turiyam and that uh, then, then you are enlightened and then that takes you beyond suffering that gives you the results of enlightenment and all of that so he is going to uh, talk about just summarize one thing as we go into the verses the terms he uses are not common vedantic terms they are pretty well known in buddhist philosophy they are again borrowed from a buddhist milieu uh, the terminology so it seems a little strange to people who have been studying vedanta in sanskrit it, these terms are not normally used but it's just the same teaching and in fact in a simpler form you will you will just see let's go into these verses 87 savastu sopalambham cha dvayam laukikam ishyate avastu sopalambham cha shuddham laukikam ishyate the ordinary waking state is admitted to be that duality coexisting with things of the empirical reality and fit to be experienced the objectless ordinary dream state is admitted to be without any object and yet as though full of experience so what is he done here he is simply describing waking and dreaming but the way he is describing it is this he says in the waking state we have certain experiences and there are objects corresponding to those experiences so there are objects in the world external to you there are objects in the world and we experience them we we see hear smell taste touch so he's just describing he's just giving a description of our experience of waking what does it consist of experiences within you and objects corresponding to those experiences so he, this is waking so uh, he he uses the term upalambham upalambham means experiences it just means seeing and hearing and smelling right now what you are doing you are you are seeing and hearing and smelling and tasting and touching these are experiences and corresponding to these experiences savastu he uses the word term savastu with object there are experiences with object and this is he calls it um, laukikam the ordinary worldly state by which he means waking then he talks about the dream state uh, where he says avastu without any external object remember all this is an analysis we are doing a very common sense thing don't read too much into it just the way you feel anybody feels about waking and dreaming how what would anybody feel about dreaming as he explains it 
when we think about dreaming, what do we say? It was an experience, no doubt about it. So he says, uh, so upalambham. Upalambham means experience. There is experience in dreams, but there are no objects. Avastu. So there are no objects. Vastu means ob object, external. There are no external objects. We wake up and we realize we never really went anywhere, never really saw anybody, never really did anything, never really ate anything. But those things we experienced. So having certain experiences in your mind without actually interacting with anything external, that's a dream. And he calls it Shuddham Laukikam. If you literally translate, it means pure worldly or pure ordinary. So the other one is uh, just ordinary, Laukikam. And this one is pure uh, ordinary. Pure means in this sense, subtle. The external world, when we have the ordinary experience in the world, it with gross external objects. But when we have dream experience, it's without any gross external object. And all the things we experience are all subtle within the mind. That's why maybe he has used the term Shuddham Lokikam. And all this is dualistic. He says Dwayam. Subject-object duality is maintained. Waking or dreaming. Alright. This sets the stage for waking and dreaming. Now obviously he will go to dreamless sleep, Sushupti. And then finally give you the insight into reality, Turiyam. Uh, which is all that we have learnt in the first chapter. Let's go to the verse number 88. It is traditionally held that the extraordinary is without content and without experience. Um, knowledge, object and realizable thing are forever declared by the wise. Okay, what does this mean? If you look carefully, you'll recognize he's talking about deep sleep. Uh, avastu, there is no object there. Anupalambham, there is no experience there. At this point, those who have been listening carefully will immediately raise objections. So, Swami, you have been telling us. That deep sleep is not an absence of experience, it's an experience of absence. Uh, we have been telling us, in deep sleep we experience deep, uh, you know, peace and joy. When we wake up we say, I, was, I did not know anything. Uh, ignorance is experienced in deep sleep. Uh, so, yes, to all of that. But remember, this is a very simple, um, ordinary description of deep sleep. So, when we say deep sleep is not an absence of experience, it is an experience of absence. After all, when you wake up, do you not look back upon your deep sleep experience and say, there I was and there was no, nothing that I knew. And so a blankness, a deep restfulness. I slept happily. I did not know anything. All that we say, uh, but it takes some reflection and trying to understand. That's not the normal idea of deep sleep. The normal, that's why when I try to say that, uh, there is a, you notice there's always a little resistance because it's not, not how we normally look at deep sleep. That's why he says, how do you feel about deep sleep? There are no objects. So he says, avastu. And there is no experience as such. Uh, he says, uh, says anupalabdham. So neither experience nor object. And he calls it lokottaram, beyond worldly experience, uh, beyond worldly state. Beyond worldly means, worldly state means the dualistic state of waking and dreaming. And the deep sleep is sort of a potential state from which these states come, waking and dreaming come. So he calls it beyond worldly, lokottaram. These are 
if you are if you are familiar with advaitic terms you will be uncomfortable because these are not the terms normally in we are used in advaita if you're not familiar you have no problem at all so uh so we have these terms waking is called laukikam uh, dreaming is called shuddham laukikam and deep sleep is called lokottaram in waking there are objects and there are experiences in dreaming there are no objects but still experiences and in deep sleep no object no experience and he says in the 88 verse so now we have three things gyanam gyeyam cha vigyeyam sada buddhe prakirtitam the wise ones those who uh, buddha here again and again uses the term buddha buddha literally means the awakened one not just say the historical buddha of buddhism the awakened one who is buddha means awakened so um the awakened ones they declare these three when you look upon your waking dreaming and deep sleep notice three things one is gyanam one is gyeyam one is vigyeyam gyanam means your experiences gyeyam means what you experience what do we experience we experience gross objects in the waking state we experience imaginations in the mind projections of our mind in the dream state and we experience um, the blankness and the the seed state basically ignorance in deep sleep or if you will you can sort of dismiss it as just blank nothing in deep sleep so these are what we experience in each three states so gyanam knowledge or experiences gyam things which are experienced and the third thing is the important one vigyam what we are supposed to realize from all of this now this look back to the seventh mantra of the first chapter the most important mantra which went nanta pragyam na bahish pragyam na bhayata pragyam. it is not the dreamer it is not the waker not the deep sleeper not something in between um, not the omniscience of god not um, unconscious and so on at the end it said sa atma sa vigyaya that is the self and that has to be realized now he says in the uh, in this verse the third thing apart from the knowers and know, the knowledge and the objects known in waking dreaming and deep sleep the important thing is what is to be realized from all of this the atman that is the fourth turiyam objects of knowledge and experiences which you have and the one to be realized by a philosophical consideration of all these experiences you have to notice it you have to recognize it within yourself Mm. let me just hold on and a lot of people have questions i know uh, but we'll just conclude this topic with the 89th verse so what you might say he concludes here in the 89th verse this process uh, which is taught by mandukya gyane cha trividhe gyeye kramena vidite swayam सर्वज्ञताहिर्वत्रिहाजेक्टेशनिवीलिंगेटेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंडेंड
it, you can call it the gross state, sthula avastha. Dream state, you can call it the subtle state, sukshma avastha. Deep sleep state, we know it is called the karana or causal state. By experiencing these three sequentially, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and again waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, and so on, and then reflecting upon it with the help of the mandukya, as we have done, one comes to the realization of the fourth. He says, Kramena vidite swayam, it becomes evident that that fourth is not mentioned here, we have to insert it that the fourth becomes revealed to us, the Turiya, this pure consciousness which is not the waking, not the waker, not the dreamer, not the deep sleeper. It is the consciousness in which appears the pair of waking and um, waking experiences, dreamer and dream experiences, deep sleeper and the blankness of deep sleep, in which appears the gross, subtle and causal. That fundamental basal or, or foundational consciousness, that I am. Not one of these waker, dreamer or deep sleeper, which come and go. You know, and we have seen how we get this uh, realization. And very simply, for example, if the waker comes and goes, you know, I give you the example of my dream, I was in Africa and all of that. So the waker is the one who went to sleep and was here in Manhattan in the, in the bedroom and sleeping. And the dreamer was the person, the dream person was in Africa, in a different place, different time, having different experiences. And then the whole thing disappeared um, when deep sleep comes. So there we, there are no distinct deep sleeper, pragya and the deep sleep experiences. They are merged into one uh, indistinct whole. It's called uh, pragyana ghana or a mass of, indistinguishable mass of subject and object. But um, in all of these states, I have to say that when I look back upon them, I have to say they were all my states. So the waker was not in the dream, the dreamer was not in the waking, and the deep sleeper is in neither. Then who is that I who owns up to all three states? That I must be independent of the waker, dreamer and deep sleeper. It must be independent of the waking world, dreaming world and the deep sleep darkness. That I is the, my real I, that pure consciousness, Turiya, which is not limited by the gross, subtle or the causal which is always my real nature. So that flashes, I am that. The Upanishad said, I am Atma Brahma, uh, this very self who thought himself to be the waker, in dreams thinks himself to be the person, the dream person. In deep sleep, you don't think yourself anything, but when you wake up, you say that I was dreaming, I was in deep sleep. This is in error, we thought like this, when we become enlightened, we realize we are that fourth, the fourth Turiya, which is really the one, it is the one consciousness in which all of these three appear and disappear. So he says, Kramena, when you examine these in sequence, Swayam, it flashes. You cannot know the uh, ultimate reality. This mind of the waker cannot actually know the ultimate reality. But when the ignorance is dispelled by knowledge, Vedantic knowledge dispels ignorance about the self in the mind, the real self, Turiya, which is always shining, that shiningness is now recognized for what it is. That is enlightenment. Um, Sarvagyata, I've explained earlier, omniscience is translated as omniscience, but omniscience in what, what uh, sense? Sarva here means everything. Everything here means whatever you experience in waking, whatever you experience in dreams, 
and whatever is in the potential state in deep sleep. The gross, subtle and causal, sthula, sukshma, karana, all entities are what is meant by sarva. All of them, they are nothing but the sturiya. Just as all kinds of ornaments are the gold or the all pottery is just the clay. In the same way, the sturiya alone appears as gross, subtle and causal. Sarva and gya. The Turian itself is consciousness. Gya means consciousness. So, Sarvagya sar literally means omniscience, but Sarva here, the omni, here it means waking, dreaming, deep sleep, universes, let us say. And the Gya means the consciousness, the Turiya. The Turiya itself is everything. So, that is realized. In that sense, omniscience. Practically, what does it mean? In every experience, you will now recognize Turiya. Just like once you understand what clay is, when you go to pottery barn, you in every pot, in every jar, you recognize the clay. The designs may be different. You may not know every design that's there in the catalog. But you know if it's made of clay, it will be clay. That much you know for sure, even without experiencing it. That is Sarvagyata, omniscience. Sarvatra, everywhere, wherever you may be, in whichever state, you realize that that is the reality. Bhavati Mahadhyaya. Mahadya, the one, the, the great one, the one of great intelligence or wisdom, the one who is enlightened, who knows the self. If you know the self, you know everything. How is that possible? Because literally you see, here the self is everything. It is, I am Atma Brahma, this very self is Brahman. Brahman is the reality of the entire universe. If you know the clay, you know all things made of clay. What do you know? You, may, you know that they are made of clay. Uh, if you know the gold, you know the all things, all the ornaments made of gold. That each ornament you take up, you can say the reality there is gold. In the same way, once you know that, that I am the Thurium, you know everything in this world in that sense. Sarvagyata, Sarvatra, in all circumstances, everywhere. Um, iha, Bhavati Iha, in this very life. So it's not something that you attain after death or going to heaven or something like that. Right now, in this very life, this is what we can expect. It is all just a um, recap, recapitulation of what happened in chapter 1, uh, just with a lot of new terminology, but in a very simplified way. You can see uh, it has just been stripped down to its bare bones, the argument. Um, before, let me see. Yeah, before we go on, now he's going to change the subject. So, before we go on, we can take the comments uh, and questions. Prakyat. ट इज यूर सेल्फ विच 
cannot be accomplished because it is ever accomplished, not because it's impossible or very difficult, because it's already accomplished, because it is effortlessly accomplished. Can it be accomplished with any effort? You'd say the answer is no, not because it's very difficult, but because it's already done. So, how much effort do you need to now, right now, to become Poonam? How much effort? What spiritual practices do you need to become Poonam? Nothing. Effortlessly, choicelessly, you might even say helplessly, I am this one. Similarly, even more so, you are Turiyam already. Now, what remains to be done, he'll talk about the sadhana aspect of it in the, uh, in the next verse, he'll talk about it. Uh, what remains to be done. Uh, there is a scope of practices, but that's different. He'll talk about that now. Um, so, this is something to be recognized, that I am already the theory. That is that epistemic shift, paradigm shift of, uh, of enlightenment, which I was talking about. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes, yes. Yes. All sadhana is to correct this error that I am not Advaitam. I am not already non-dual. See, because we are experiencing a waking world, as he said, it is dvayam, it is dualistic. There are objects and there are experiences. So clearly, subject-object difference is there. Now, our problem is, according to Advaita, is that you are experiencing and you are taking this to be real. Just like I was running in Africa away from a lion, subject-object relationship. I am there, threatened by the object lion, and then I am taking some action. Now, go, our, from a waking standpoint, what advice will you give? How to fight with the lion, how to climb the tree? No, you will say, none of that matters, because it is not real. That you are uh, completely safe from the lion. Is that accomplished or do you have to do some sadhana? It is accomplished. Because neither the lion exists, nor are you in Africa, nor is the tree there, nor do you have to save that body which you see in the dream. No. But if there is anything to be done, it is to correct the error that those things are real. In fact, you can even go on seeing it. Only thing you need to know, it is a dream. When you wake up from the dream, after that also you can go back into the dream. Similarly, a Jeevan Mukta sees all this, will come back into the same waking. But for the Jeevan Mukta, what is important in the waking is the Turiya, is the fourth. For us, that is completely hidden and this waking world is absolutely real. That's why we feel something has to be done here. Uh, it's like saying, what has to be done to the pot in the pottery barn to make it this thing you are calling clay? Nothing has to be done, you just have to recognize it. All right. Yes. After enlightenment, is karma still operative? In Jainism, there is a distinction between destructive and non-destructive karma. Destructive karma is gone with enlightenment, but non-destructive karma persists, like the karma determining one's lifespan, the physical characteristics of his body, etc. Yes, so Jainism is, is actually very specialized on karma, as Professor Long knows, so they have very detailed, detailed discussions about karma. The main obstruction to enlightenment is karma and how do you get rid of the obstructing karma? That's the whole of sadhana and it's a long and difficult and hard road. Now, in Advaita Vedanta, the traditional Shankarite and post-Shankarite Advaita Vedanta, they will talk about something called um, the um, karma which remains after enlightenment, the uh, karma lesha. 
so that means after enlightenment also if the body and mind in this life has been produced by prarabdha karma and after enlightenment if all karma is destroyed and upanishad says all karma is destroyed kshiyante chasya karmani mandukya upanishad says once you realize that transcendent immanent reality tasmin drishte paravade kshiyante chasya karmani once you realize that transcendent immanent reality that is brahman uh, all your karma the enlightened one's karma is destroyed so if that is so then how do we still see the enlightened one how does the enlightened one still have a have a body and move around with us and go through various experiences so they say that um give different examples this is a traditional explanation uh, they give different examples to, so that uh, uh, suppose um the wheel of the potter is rotating and uh, the potter finishes his work on the potter's wheel and walks off the wheel because he had given it a big push the wheel still rotates a couple of circles and then comes to a rest that still rotating is on the because of the influence of the past the momentum past momentum um then another example is the arrows so an archer is shooting arrows and th- there are arrows in the quiver there's an arrow on the bow uh and suddenly if he decides not to shoot any more arrows he can throw away the arrows in the quiver he can even throw away the arrow which has set on the bow uh but the arrow which is released is already in flight he can't do anything about that that will go and hit the target so the body which is already giving results prarabdha karma which is giving results to this body it will go on till the death of this body that's how they explain jivan mukti now, who explain uh, advaitins especially post shankara advaitins by this leftover karma let us say and that will determine the life span and the physical characteristics of the body so that that way they're very similar but again this is an apparent explanation uh, shankaracharya also says this in aparokshanubhuti at the end that this is sort of a provisional explanation uh, because after enlightenment you realize karma also is not real we we saw gaudapada spent so much time in um criticizing and deconstructing the whole theory of karma that it just can't be real so karma is an explanatory device at the vyavaharika transactional level uh, so yes so that's the ultimate position of the of uh, gaudapada or advaita vedanta there's no real thing ultimately apart from brahman you are brahman you realize you are brahman from your perspective from the perspective of the others an explanatory mechanism is required and so karma lesha leftover karma uh things like that one may hold on to okay another question in the chat from shravani what's the nature of the so called bliss in deep sleep does it differ from the bliss attributed to brahman yes or- yes so bliss is not attributed to brahman or turiya bliss is, bliss is the very nature of brahman or turiya but that bliss is infinite without limit that bliss does not increase or decrease which bliss brahman ananda which is bliss itself So I Vivekananda said it's not that Brahman is happy it is happiness itself and it's not that Brahman exists it is existence itself not that Brahman knows it is knowledge itself so sat chit ananda that is Brahman but the bliss which is experienced in turi in deep sleep and in our day to day life that comes from the anandamaya kosha the final sheath final within quote quote and quote covering uh, before you realize the self so the ananda the causal state so that is full of Uh, it is full of the radiance of brahman let us say it's a deeply peaceful state yeah. and that comes and goes 
once you snap out of deep sleep it's gone um, so that is not uh, it, it is a reflection of the ananda of um, or the uh, brahman and that is reflected in the ananda maya kosha yeah there's a huge discussion about this in the ananda maya adhikaranam of brahma sutra anyway then maharaj uh, i i may be anticipating the next sutra but i'd like to know whether gorapada lays stress on ethical prerequisites as shankara does the four four qualifications in order to even embark on the study of advaita yes um you are right you, you are anticipating what he what he is going to say in the next um, kadika about moral and ethical practices and other practices they're going to come now um but and also you saw in the earlier karika he said that they must manifest in the life of an enlightened person and the enlightened person manifests these moral qualities naturally what is a matter of practice for others is a mat- matter of natural expression for the enlightened being it's one thing for the enlightened person but it's another for us who are seeking enlightenment yes for us uh, he is going to talk about it next what kind of ethical practice is necessary all advaitins without uh, any exception they would say moral and ethical practices without any question they have to be there otherwise advaita is not going to work any spiritual life is not going to work for you okay bhiji ram samiji namaste so in the translation for this verse 86 given in the book says when after the acquisition of knowledge and the knowledge of the object is succession the supreme reality becomes self revealed then etc so there is a when then yeah spent all of this time establishing non causality yes then in this verse it is saying causality when you do this then that happens hmm. Hmm. so how is that explained yes so remember here is the teaching and uh, this is a recap of the teaching of the first uh, chapter when you look at the waking and the dreaming and the deep sleep and then uh, upon the reflection doing shravana manana niridhyasana as uh, you know guided by the mandukya you come to this realization i am the turiya so there is time and there is study and there is effort all of that is put in and then there is there is this flash of understanding so there is causality working there definitely at the level but still that's duality once you realize that you are turiya you will realize that there is no causality that turiyam itself which you always were you are and you always will be it does not come from anything even the ignorance and the removal of ignorance there is no such thing in fact in the uh, next couple of verses even the thing like enlightenment he will say that actually you are always enlightened <laughs> even enlightenment and he says even enlightenment is not required and we'll we'll explain why there were very good reason why yeah so this this verse has to be not taken as after all of the non causality is established it's supposed to be put on the first chapter this is a, a, a recapitulation of the teaching the essential teaching of the mandukya okay. remember a lot of what gaudapada is saying is from the highest perspective from the enlightened beings perspective often a lot of things which we hear from enlightened teachers in especially in non advaitic contexts is meant as teaching for us but if you press them and because that's what they are there for that's there for they are there to teach us and guide us but if you press them what is it like for you 
they would sort of jettison most of that, what they have told us. It is necessary for us. What is it like from the roof? The view from the roof is not the view from the uh, bottom of the ladder, not from the middle of the ladder. You have to get a, a climb up and let go of the ladder, then you get the view from the roof. But the thing is, as a teacher, if you talk about the view from the roof, it's not of much use to us. Because we think we are in, on this spiritual journey. Gaurapada emphasizes that think. You think you are on a spiritual journey. Actually, there is no spiritual journey. <laughs> That's what he wants to say. And he will come. He will say, uh, use words like Adi Buddha. You are Buddhas from eternally, from the very beginning, even now. Adi Shantaha. All samsara is never there. You are always peaceful and beyond samsara, whether you think you are enlightened or not. He is going to talk about that a little later. The answer to is a good question and the, its answer to both of these, both parts of this question is yes. Do you ever get caught up? There will be a stage after the breakthrough when you seem to get caught up. Why do I say seem? Listen carefully. Who gets caught up? It's that ego which thinks of itself as the waker. And the knowledge of the Turiya is already there in the background. But it thinks of itself as a waker and thinks that it's caught up in samsara. There is a problem and then you react. Just like it was reacting earlier in anger or irritation or whatever or in disappointment. But now when you bring the knowledge of the Turiya to bear, in me the radiance, this consciousness, there arises this ego and its object and it's reacting. You'll see the problem belongs to the ego and to, to, to its objects, to its world, the waker and the waker's world. You are neither. You are the reality underlying both of them. It's like falling into the dream and being chased around by the, by the lion. Now, am I really caught up again in that problem of the dream? No, I am not. But it seems to be caught up for the time being. Now, when you again reflect back and you dissolve that problem. So, these problematic situations are actually very useful for the Advaitin at that level. This is an advanced Advaitin, a person who has already got clarity. Then all these challenges which come in day-to-day -day life, these are all occasions for Nididhyasana. For Vedantic contemplation, for manifesting the Thuriya in that difficult situation, till it becomes natural, till it becomes natural. Um, in every situation, you are that ever peaceful, pure consciousness. You are that, but you recognize that naturally. Now. Who recognizes? The mind recognizes. It is the mind which has to be immersed again and again. So, after that in initial breakthrough, many of the great enlightened ones, you will notice, like Ramana Maharshi or Sri Ramakrishna also, they remain in samadhi for a long time, in actual yogic samadhi. Why is that necessary? If everything is Turiyam, then why is that necessary? It is necessary for the mind, not necessary for Turiyam. The mind has to be immersed in this new breakthrough till it becomes saturated from this new perspective. Then with eyes closed or eyes open, it is the same reality. Yes. Uh, yes. 
Yeah, uh, go on. My question is that it seems to me that Advaita starts with Turiya as the only reality and argues that the empirical world is illusory. So it goes from, you might say, from idealism to argue against realism or materialism. Now, is there any, any way to start with materialism and end up in the idealism? In other words, prove the inevitability of one reality that projects appearances. Is there in philosophy, in Indian philosophy, uh, the other direction to end up in the same place, basically? Not just that. Yes, there is. If you take the, the most common approach is actually a pretty realistic approach. It is the Srishti Drishti approach, uh, which is uh, most common in, in the Upanishads and in Shankara's commentaries. He starts with our common sense approach of the universe, that the universe that we are subjects experiencing objects, a pretty realistic um, worldview. And then he goes on to show that there is an underlying reality for the subject object. So, to start with an idealistic point of view, which is Drishti Shrishti, uh, it is a more advanced way, but it is not necessary. You can start with the realistic point of view, but ultimately you have to discover a, this background existence, existence consciousness. Yeah. So, in fact, some philosophers have, modern philosophers, have actually tried to argue that Shankara uh, espoused realism, not idealism, which might seem very strange because, but, but they have a point. As far as this transactional world is concerned, Vyavaharika, um, realism is a better foundation or better beginning step than idealism because idealism is not, some, not the way we commonly think. But in both cases, whether you begin idealistically or realistically, you have to transcend that and go to the absolute. So, uh, they say that Advaita Vedanta is absolutism and neither realism nor idealism. Yeah. Phil? Yes. Hi, Swamiji. Um, Hi, Phil. I tried to uh, write this question, but apparently I did it incorrectly. Um, We've all, those of us uh, following uh, the history, uh, have experienced uh, the disillusionment and confusion when a number of gurus um, who were held to be enlightened uh, misbehaved or behaved immorally. Uh, and so the question for many of us has always been, there are two possible explanations. One, that those people were not truly realized, or realization as defined by states of consciousness um, doesn't necessarily uh, bring with it uh, a perfection of moral behavior. Uh, I, I'm wondering what you, or maybe there's an explanation, a third or fourth explanation, but how, how, how do you feel about this? This is actually relevant to what we were discussing just a little while ago. The different, That's why I asked it. Yes, different models of uh, realization. So, there is this um, a paradigm shift, uh, an, ethic, an epistemological model, then you suddenly see this reality which is not evident to 
the rest of us are not even evident, was not evident to the seeker before realization, before enlightenment. You suddenly see this and it's very powerful, very vivid and constant. All right. Is it reflected in life, in behavior, in thought and in speech? Uh, the teaching of Advaita and indeed of all spiritual traditions, Indian of course, but all spiritual traditions is ethics and morality are intimately collected with, connected with spirituality. One can be ethical without being particularly spiritual, but one cannot be spiritual without being ethical. So if one claims to be very spiritual and, and still does something that's evidently not ethical, there's something, at least at the very least, something very wrong with uh, the spirituality that's being claimed. So this is, that is what Gaurapada says here and here, it, uh, in, in just this verse which we saw in 86, I think. It's a natural expression. If a person is enlightened, then uh, he says, um, this is the natural life this an enlightened being should lead or it should be evident. Moral in action and in thought and in speech, all of these things should be evident in the life of an enlightened being. Now, specifically, if you mean teachers who have uh, fallen or been disappointed, notice in the tradition, this is well known that one may actually get genuine breakthroughs and yet not be a Jivan Mukta, far less a Guru. So the strong recommendation for people who do get the breakthrough, and that's a pretty advanced state, is to stay with the sadhana, to stay with the spiritual practices until it's natural. Why would somebody with uh, a clear breakthrough, why would that person still behave uh, in a problematic way? There's a strong reason for that, because that, that uh, paradigmatic, that shift in, uh, in the view, the epistemological shift, that paradigm shift, is, has not yet soaked through to the other le levels of the mind, um, so which still carries on under the impetus of past behavior. An example which we see in um, um, Sri Ramakrishna's guru, Totapuri, who was obviously an enlightened being, and yet lost his temper when he was sitting in, in uh, meditation and had lit the sacred fire, was instructing Sri Ramakrishna. The, the night watchman of the Dakshineshwar temple came to take a little bit of fire for his pipe, for he was smoking tobacco, or the Hubble bubble, I think. And it's sacred for sannyasis, that fire. So when he tried to take a little bit of fire from there, Tozapuri immediately flew into rage and I think he chased him around. And Sri Ramakrishna couldn't stop laughing and clapping in delight. And he says, I have seen the limits of your Brahma Jnana, I have seen the limits of your, uh, that everything is Brahman, there is one tranquil, you don't seem very tranquil, <laughs> you seem very upset. And Sri but the thing is, Totapuri immediately acknowledges it and nobody ever saw him angry again. So this is the difference. <laughs> so something may go on under the impetus, in fact he will talk about this later on, uh, uh, in the next verse actually. What should not be allowed to go on? And what can be allowed to go on? Certain things will go on. The mental makeup of each, uh, the character of each enlightened being is different. Uh, very natural given their background. And many things will continue which will, be, which will distinguish each enlightened being from the other. But what should not be allowed to go on? So that will come. Yeah. So in many cases, there may be outright frauds. In many cases, they may not actually be frauds. And th those are the tragedies of spiritual life. Uh, that a person may actually slip away 
under the temptations of overwhelming uh, popularity and uh, you know, all kinds of attractions, uh, power, um, they become cult leaders, a tremendous amount of power is given to such people and they have a kind of charisma to, to them. Um, after the world parliament speeches, you know this uh, Vivekananda, uh, he is there in the parliament of world religions and he has given this talk to tremendous ovation, one of those talks there. And this lady who, who writes the, her reminiscences of that event, uh, she says that, I saw so many people jumping over benches and chairs to get to Vivekananda and, and you know, talk to him or touch the hem of his robe and young women, girls running across and this lady, she stays at the back and she says, uh, well, my boy, if you can uh, withstand that, then you're truly a god. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Mrs. Blodgett, yes, Mrs. Blodgett, yes, Bill, uh, thank you, Bill. Yeah, so how do you withstand that? If your realization is 100% that you know you are that without any doubt and that is also reflected in at every level of thought and speech and behavior. Yeah. That's why that ethical manifestation is very important. Vivekananda's definition of religion is the manifestation of the div divinity already within us. Not just the knowledge or the realization of the divinity. Manifest. In th even if the word uh, realization is different from the word knowledge. So you may know something, you may have even seen it. But realization is making it real in, in life. Um, you know, where walk the talk, where the, what the rubber hits the road. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Prakyat, anybody else? Maharaj, uh, when in a yogic, yogic path, when people get Vivekalpa Samadhi, is that a realization or how is that different from the Advaitic path? I'll give you a brief answer. The idea of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, I'm, um, use the, I'm using the Patanjali Yoga term, Asam Pragyata Samadhi, which is Yoga Chitta Vritti Niroda, all modifications of the mind sees there. It is a practice with a purpose. Every practice has a goal in mind. And the goal of that is to appreciate the witness consciousness in its real nature. Tada Drashtu Swarupi Avasthanam. That is the goal from Patanjali Yoga Sutra. The witness consciousness should be appreciated or realized in its real nature. What do you mean? What, what, what is wrong at other times when you are not in Samadhi, when the mind is active? The witness consciousness is obscured and identified with the activities of the mind. Vritti Sarupyam Itaratra. Vritti means the modifications of the mind. Sarupyam identification. Consciousness becomes indistinguishable from the modifications of the mind. Which is exactly our state now. And absolute calmness of the mind, which is Asampragyata Samadhi, prolonged, is very helpful in realizing the distinction between Atman and mind, between Purusha and Prakriti. So that's the yogic approach. The Vedantic approach is that why do you have to shut down the mind? The problem is not one of restlessness of the mind. The problem is one of ignorance and the solution is knowledge. And knowledge comes by the instruction from a source of knowledge, that is Upanishads. And then investigation. Knowledge arises out of investigation, not out of sitting quietly. So that is the Vedantic approach. And in the Sadhus in the Uttarakhand, you will see 
it's a, this direct philosophical inquiry which you find in the Gaudapada and Karikas. Uh, he is not recommending deep meditation of the yogic variety, not shutting down. He is recommending meditation when you understand what the teaching is, then you stay with it for a long time. Focus on it. That kind of meditation called Nididhyasana, he is recommending. Um, so, the Uttarakhand sadhus will say, this kind of Vedantic vichara is for Uttam Adhikari. The best qualified students are supposed to inquire this, uh, in this way, as Gaudapada is showing. Those who are middle Adhikaris, not so acute, not so sharp, they are supposed to practice yoga and go into Samadhi. <laughs> but this is the Vedantic approach. Or, but when Thakur used to touch, like when touched, he touched Narendranath, and he had, he, he saw that everybody, everything was, uh, you know, this bright light and all that stuff. Mm. What was that? Mm. So that is, uh, uh, it's something that you find in Kashmiri Shaivism. It's like Shambhavi. The uh, very advanced spiritual masters can actually transmit that realization straight to you. It's a powerful breakthrough. Yeah. So that was a realization? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, some kind of realization, definitely. Yeah. Alright. Now let us go on. 90 is an important verse. It's perhaps the only verse where Gaurapada touches upon what we normally think of as spiritual practice. <laughs> so he just touches upon it. Remember, this is Mandukya. So, <laughs> Things to be rejected, realized, accepted and made ineffective are known to be unknown at the very beginning. From among them, the three accepting the realizable are, are traditionally held to be only fancies resulting from ignorance. So it's very Gaurapada. He says, um, there, are, there, are, there are four things he talks about here. One is heya, things that have to be given up or rejected. The other thing is genya, the thing, thing that has to be realized. And the third thing is apya, apyani, to be acquired, certain um, practices and qualities to be acquired. Pakyani, is a very interesting use, uh, certain things to be cooked, to be roasted literally. So what does that mean? These things have to be known, he says, vigyan, vigyani aprayanatu, before beginning spiritual life these things have to be clear. These four things have to be clear. What is to be rejected, rejected or, or transcended, let's say. What is to be realized and what are the qualities to be acquired and what are the certain defects to be roasted or um, you know, given up. So what are these? Heya, to be transcended or rejected. Waking, dreaming, deep sleep. The three states. What we totally identify ourselves as, I am this person, this body and mind, and this is my word. And now notice, you cannot reject it or transcend it unless you find something that transcends it. You can't just say, give it up, 
this is all unreal. It's like I was in the middle of the dream and running away from the lion in Africa and if you, and if you appear there and suddenly in the middle of that dream and say, look Swami, all this is a dream, give it all up, you are not in Africa, this is not a lion. This, unless the waking state is clear to me, I can't give up the dream state. What will I give it up based on what? I have to wake up from the dream in order to treat it as a dream. So similarly, you have to realize the Thuriyam. Otherwise, it's no use saying that you are not the waker and this waking world is false. False with respect to what? In terms of the waking world, definitely you are waker and there is a waking world. There is a job and there are people, there are uh, problems, there is coronavirus, all of that. You have to deal with it. But what Advaita is saying that there is a deeper underlying reality right there which you are not recognizing. If you do recognize it and you see it as your real nature, this will become like a dream, inconsequential. So you, are, you have to reject this identity with the duality in waking, in dreaming and the potential duality which is there in deep sleep. So this is called heya, to be given up. What is to be, uh, to be known, vijnaya, that I am the Turiya, I am Brahman, Aham Brahmasmi. This has to be realized. Remember, these are four things to be realized before, uh, four things to be known, understood before you start off in spiritual life. So what's the goal? What appears to me is absolutely real in my commonplace life, this is actually uh, an error, a mistake. This is to be transcended first. Second, this can be transcended only when I know the reality, which is that I am Turiyam, the fourth. Then number three, Apyani, some things to be acquired. What are to be, we all know this, the fourfold qualifications. Viveka, Vairagya, the, the Viveka is the, um, the discrimination or the discernment of the eternal from the non-eternal based on reading, based on instruction, based on what you have been taught. You have not realized it yet. Then uh, Vairagya, dispassion for the non-eternal. And then the sixfold treasures, we have all studied this. Shama, Dhamma, Uparati, Titiksha, um, Shraddha, Samadhan, all of these. I am not translating. And then finally Mumukshutva, an intense desire to realize, to come out of this problematic life. Um, so all of these Apyani, but not just these, everything else that you do in spiritual life for enlightenment. Come to, um, you know, you discover Vedanta, come to Zoom class, uh, spend your summer afternoons listening to an uh, abstruse 1500-year-old Indian philosopher. Uh, the great sacrifices people make for enlightenment, some become monks and give up every other pursuit in life just to pursue this thing. All of these are um, apyani, to be acquired in life uh, for your spiritual pursuit. And then there is a whole host of defects which hold you back in, in your spiritual pursuit. Kama, Krodha, Lobha, Lust and Anger and Greed. These have to be given up. That's the fourth one, the Bhakyani. Um, so the, the major defects, Sri Ramakrishna said, Kam Kanchantag, giving up of lust and gold. So these things have to be, uh, you have to make a clear effort to push these things out of your life. First of all, that which is clearly immoral has to be given up. Then, that which is moral but yet selfish has to be spiritualized through Karma Yoga. And then there remain certain other smaller desires 
So there is that thing which comes in, Pakyani to be roasted. What he means is this. Sri Ramakrishna also uses this example. It's an old Vedantic example. Notice that every um, enlightened being is also a human being. For example, they have their little peculiarities, little eccentricities, idiosyncrasies. So Sri Ramakrishna likes jalebi. Swami Vivekananda likes uh, chocolate ice cream. Now, is this against enlightenment or not? If somebody might say, why would an enlightened being like jalebi? So, what is the choice? Would that enlightened being like jalebi or chocolate ice cream or nothing? Would he go around with a bitter, sour, lemon, <laughs> lemon sucking face that everything is horrible? Would, would that be enlightenment? No. Certain makeup of the mind which was there before enlightenment will continue in the Jivan Mukta. But they should not be such that will provide any kind of obstruction to either enlightenment or to the manifestation of that enlightenment. Now what happens is these small desires, these small expressions uh, of, a, of a personality which make a person unique, they, have, they will not obstruct enlightenment. They do not obstruct, obstruct enlightenment or an uh, expression of enlightenment also. So Sri Ramakrishna gives an example, a burnt rope. It still retains the uh, look of a rope. But if you try to tie somebody with it, it will just disintegrate into ashes. Now, Pakyani, the very term used here, roasted, it refers to seeds. If you roast the seeds, they'll still look like seeds, but they'll never germinate again. So these small desires in the mind, they are roasted by the fire of enlightenment. They will never germinate into anything that can hold back the enlightened person. <laughs> you should be ready to have if it go, things go your way, which you want them to go, an enlightened person also may have um, uh, preferences. If they do not go your way, you should be equally tranquil. That is the distinction between an, uh, of a very spiritual person, let alone enlightened, and uh, a worldly person. We get upset if things do not go uh, our way. Swami Bhuteshanandaji told us about sadhus in Uttarakhand, monks in the Himalayas. They have a saying among themselves. They depend on arms for their food. So, and it changes from time to time. Sometimes they get good food, sometimes mediocre, sometimes nothing. Um, the saying is, Kabhi ghi ghana, kabhi mutthi bhar chana, to kabhi wobhi mana. So, sometimes you get thick ghee and you know, rich food. Sometimes just a handful of gram. And sometimes not even that. And you should be absolutely equal, uh, serene about all of this. So, that is when the seeds are roasted. I still remember, this is a very funny incident. A senior monk of our order, uh, he was um, in Belurmat, and a young boy had come to join the order. And the monk gave, the senior monk gave such an example, which we found it funny, but it's uh, instructive, it's a very small thing. Somebody bought tea for that monk, and for the young man who had come to join. And this monk told him, look, we wanted tea and the tea was bought to us. It came, but it, it might not have come. And if you are okay with all of that, then you can be a monk. Now, it's a very small thing he said, but it's, it's very instructive. Uh, and, and that stands not just for the tea, tea coming or not coming. It stands for everything in life, going your way or not going according to your preferences. That's the, ultimately from an enlightened perspe person's perspective, the roasted, the roasted seed. 
but remember here there is a very strong warning the major pulls which tie us to worldly life um, lust and anger and greed these have to be transcended there you cannot argue that oh anger is there it's just a roasted seed looks like anger but it's not really anger <laughs> there you, you can't argue that then uh, there is something wrong but again you have to actually investigate deeply uh, it uh, it's not so obvious a person may be very serene but just maybe calm and quiet and even tempered by nature it may not be particularly spiritual another person I, we have seen very spiritual people they might fly to, fly into a flash of anger but again let go, let's go off it immediately very fast Swami so, Premanandaji, there is a reminiscence, Premanandaji was a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, the, he was a manager of Belurmat, very popular among young men who came to become monks at, at that time. So one young man writes, um, I was talking with Swami Premananda who with his usual very loving way he was talking to me and then it, there was a novice, a brahmachari, a novice monk who came, had done something wrong and Premanandaji turned around and scolding him and Premanandaji was very fair. So when he was scolding, his face became red with anger. And I was standing there and watching, thinking, oh wow, this monk has anger. The moment I thought that, Premanandji turned towards me with the sweetest of smiles and, and the most calm uh, expression and talked to me sweetly again. Within a minute, he turned around and face became red and started scolding that uh, other monk. Now, uh, so these things you have to watch out for. That we may not, what an what enlightened being is, may not be so obvious to us. Uh, from our perspective, we may be too hasty to judge. Um, all right, let me go on. Ah, Professor Jeffrey Long has pointed out something. I wanted to say this, so thank you for pointing it out. Sri Ramakrishna called ego of wisdom or ego of uh, devotion, Gane Rami, ki Bhakti Rami, also. The difference between paka ami or kacha ami. Paka means ripe or roasted and kacha means unripe. The unripe ego is identified with body mind, waker and with a host of problems, raga, dvesha, likes and dislikes um, which are crowding the mind and they are, I like this, I hate that. The ripe ego um, which Sri Ramakrishna talks about is the roasted thing that where it's the same mind, same thoughts are there, same likes and dislikes. None of it can bind you because the ego is no longer you. You are the Turiya. You observe the same mind with its um, assorted furniture, but it, none of it can bind you anymore. So that's the ripe ego. And the ripe ego is usually a devotee's ego. I am the servant of the Lord. Or a jnani's ego, which is... Nothing other than Chidananda Rupaha Shivoham. I am of the nature of Shiva, I am the nature of bliss. Alright. I just wanted to do a, a couple of more verses. But remember, at the end of this, he says, Upalamba Trishu Smita, <laughs> a Gaurapada touch. Among all of these, which the, uh, among all of which, the four, the three to be transcended, waking, dreaming, deep sleep. The one to be realized, I am the Thuriam, and the qualities to be cultivated, Apyani, and the defects to be overcome or roasted, Pakyani. And that also refers back to Phil's question, which of the desires or the tendencies of the mind are to be absolutely given up 
and which others can be left safely. The strong ones which tie us to this world are to be absolutely given up. There should be no immorality left in the life of, of an enlightened being. There are smaller ones which give, lend distinctiveness to every individuality, pre preferences, you know, jalebi and chocolate ice cream. They can be left, but they are to be roasted. They are roasted by the fire of knowledge so that they don't bind you anymore. So, now what Godapada says, among these four, among these four, the second one, I am Turiyam, is the only reality. The other three, waking, dreaming and deep sleep and giving them up, giving them up means not identifying with them. And the qualities to be cultivated and the defects to be given up, they are all appearances. Yeah. And so this is what makes Gaudapada dangerous. Immature mind will immediately say, oh, so he said all ethical cultivation is an appearance and need not bother at your own risk. <laughs> you need not bother, Gaudapada never said that. But remember, Gaudapada will never fail to show us the view from the top of the Everest. Okay. He is very thoroughly consistent and honest there. But you have to be very mature to see what he is telling you. Um, then, what is his view? So, from now on till the almost the very end, he will continue to give us some very beautiful verses um, showing us the highest point of view. Let me do three quickly, 91, 92, 93. Then we will end with the, some closing comments and questions. 91. Prakritya akashavad geya sarve dharma nadayaha Vidyate nahinanatvam tesham kvachana kinchana. So, this is from the ultimate standpoint, from Turiya's standpoint. All souls, all the jivas, they should be known as naturally analogous, like space and as eternal. There is no plurality among them anywhere, not even by a jot or tittle. So, I was a little taken aback by this word. It looks so much like little. But Gambiranji has used the word tittle and I vaguely knew that it meant a little but I had to look it up and no wonder it's archaic. <laughs> it just means a tiny portion, a tiny part. So in the tiniest, in the smallest, uh, in, in the littlest sense also there is no plurality. There is only non-duality. Actually speaking there is only the non-dual Brahman, Turiyam and you are that. Choicelessly, one might even say helplessly that. And he compares it with space. Just like when you look at the physical world, everything in this world is in space. So everything that we experience in life, waking, dreaming, deep sleep, spiritual life, worldly life, whatever, is all appearing in you the consciousness and is nothing apart from you the consciousness. They have no independent reality and that's the definition of mithya or falsity. What is false about them? That they appear to exist on their own, to use a Buddhistic uh, terminology, from their own side. They appear to exist from their own side as it were. No, they don't. No more than the lion which chased me through the plains of Africa and the tree. Neither the lion, nor the plains of Africa, nor the tree, nor the sky, nor even the Swami body there. None of them had any existence apart from the dreamer's mind, I the dreamer's mind. Similarly, here, Apart from you, the consciousness, none of this has any existence. Um, also, just as the sky is not affected by the purity or impurity, the goodness or the badness of the things which exist in space, 
sky remains pure. Similarly, you are completely unaffected by the purity impurity of the appearances in you. As long as you identify with the Turiya, as you know that you are that. And there are many, many other uh, similarities. Oneness. The sky, though it appears to be divided, you have uh, 10 buckets, you think there are 10 spaces inside the sky. You make a big multi-storied building in uh, what was open uh, space, then you feel that there are 100 apartments there. But the space is not divided. It just appears to be divided. Similarly, when many bodies and many minds appear, that one consciousness appears to be many jivas, many sentient beings, but it is actually one non-dual consciousness even now, when 7 billion human beings and countless billions of animals and other lower creatures appear, it's still one undivided consciousness and you are that, not a part of it. Even it's wrong to say a whole of it, there's no part and whole there, you are that. Moving on. Um, So, nahi nanatvam, when we keep on talking about all sentient beings, all sentient beings, all jivas, don't come to under the misapprehension that there are many jivas. There is actually one Turiya. It just appears to be many because of the presence of many bodies and minds. Just like one sky appears to be many because of many pots or many rooms. Ah, these two verses, 92 and 93, I'll just read them out. Very beautiful, very poetic. 92. Adi Buddha Prakrityeva Sarve Dharma Sunishchita Yasyevam Bhavati Kshanti Somritatvaya Kalpate All the souls, that is the sentient beings, are by their very nature illumined from the very beginning and their characteristics are well determined. He to whom ensues in this way the freedom from the need of any further acquisition of knowledge becomes fit for immortality. Let me just say a little bit about that. First of all, this, this term, Adi Buddhaha, Sarve Dharma. All sentient beings are Buddhas. Not just they have the capacity to become Buddhas, to become illumined. Uh, not just that they can realize that they are Turiya. You are the Turiya. And in fact, he says you are ever illumined. So this is something startling because we know it's standard in Advaita Vedanta to say that from the very beginning you are Brahman. You are Brahman, you were, you are, you just don't know it and you will be. There's choicelessly you are the absolute. And that's good news in itself. But he goes further. We think that, yes, yes, I know that, but I have to be enlightened. I have to come to realize that I am not enlightened yet. So if Buddha means enlightened, then I am a Buddha, I am not enlightened. Or I am the Hindi Buddhu, <laughs> Buddhu means the fool. So I am not yet Buddha, I am Buddhu. He says, no, you are Adi Buddha, you are Buddha, you are enlightened. And when, when did I become enlightened? You ever always were. See what it means is this, first of all from, from the Turiya perspective, all of us are already choicelessly Turiya, from his perspective, there is no problem at all. This whole enlightenment business is whose problem? It's our problem. For a long time, life after life, we have been engaged in worldly projects. And having matured, thank God, over lifetimes, now we have undertaken a spiritual project. But even this spiritual project, like worldly projects, are projects in ignorance. 
even the drive and the seeking for enlightenment is still within ignorance. When one becomes enlightened from Gaudapada's perspective, what is important? See, look at it this way. From our perspective, what is important? I'll give you two things. One, the fact that you are Brahman, you are ever one with God, you are Satchidananda. This is one. The second is, I have to realize that, I have to become enlightened. Which of the two is important to us? Right now, you will feel, as spiritual seekers, we all feel that it's the second one. Yes, yes, I know that I'm Brahman, but uh, I really don't know. I have to realize it and that's the thing. That's why I'm here. Uh, I don't need you to tell me I'm Brahman. I need you to tell me how to know that I'm Brahman, how to become enlightened. So that's our choice between the two, that you are Brahman and you need to get enlightened. We would say that the second thing is very important. Because without that second thing, we still suffer from samsara. But, here is the beauty. From the enlightened person's perspective, the fact that you are the absolute, that God is indeed everything, inside and outside, that is the overwhelming fact. That a few of you think that you are unenlightened, that God is playing this game of being unenlightened and being a spiritual seeker and trying to become enlightened, this is fun for the enlightened one. He doesn't take it seriously. From the enlightened ones, see from our perspective, who is our hero? If you want to become rich, the billionaires are your heroes. If you want to become learned, the Nobel Prize winners are your heroes. And if you want to become spiritual, the enlightened, the Buddhas, the Ramakrishnas, the Vivekanandas, the Jivan Muktas are our heroes. We want to be like that. But from, from the enlightened person's perspective, from Gaudapada's perspective, everybody, the unenlightened, so-called unenlightened and the enlightened, the important thing is that they are all Brahman, that they are all God. That the, very, the fact that we are as yet unenlightened is not of great consequence to them. They just see our, the divinity within us and they will bow down to the divinity within us. As Swami Shivanandaji, there's a very nice reminiscence. He's president of the order, um, Sri Ramakrishna's disciple, hundreds of devotees coming to meet. At one time, he would bow down to the devotees even before the devotees could bow down to him. And everybody felt very uncomfortable. He's the president of the order and so on and so forth. So later somebody, some monk asked him, Swami, why do you do that? You make the, the visitors uncomfortable. You are bowing down to them. And you are uh, this, you know, president of the order and you're a disciple of Sri Ramakrishna, enlightened being. He said, what can I do? When they come, I can't see their human form. Their Ishta Devatas blaze out before me. The chosen form of the deity, the form in which they are supposed to worship God, that shines through. I am looking at God. I have to bow down. I can't teach them in that way. I have to bow down till when the divinity fades away and a human form comes in front of me and then I can speak to them. You see? So that's what he's saying. Adi Buddha. From his perspective, you are already, um, you are eternally Buddhas. Prakritiyeva, by your very nature, not by your effort. Sarve dharma, all beings, not just bodhisattvas, not just jivan muktas or uh, not just um, great spiritual seekers. No, all beings, even the most worldly ones. Adi Buddha, Sunishchita. He says, this is not just a claim I am making, this is absolute clarity, I have full conviction on this. And then he says, you too should have that. He says, Yasyaivam bhavati kshanti. If you look at Shankaracharya's commentary later on, that's, that's stunning. 
he says coming to this conclusion you should give up any kind of spiritual seeking once this conviction is clear you should drop spiritual seeking because you are turiyam there should be no more problem for you once you drop any further spiritual seeking i have to, i know all this but i still have to become enlightened no 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 if you really know all this stay with it there is nothing more to be known at all he says having known that there is nothing more to be known at all one becomes fit for immortality 93 adi shantayanutpanna prakrityeva sunirvritaha sarve dharma samabhinna ajam samyam visharadam another beautiful term let translation since the souls are from the very beginning tranquil unborn and by their very nature completely unattached equal and non-different and since reality is thus birthless uniform and holy therefore there is no need of any acquisition etc another stunning verse adi shanta you may say all that but i am experiencing samsara i am in trouble and i need to get enlightened that's what i've learned gorapada you are just crazy and he says you know you are not experiencing samsara adi shanta from his perspective there is only turiya what is this problem you are speaking about there is no problem at all adi shanta means samsara has ever ceased from you there was no samsara for you to begin with even the questions of how did it start how will it end how do i come out of this none of this he accepts because notice he is just speaking from the paramarthic standpoint from the absolute standpoint when a very honest give me the straight answer from an enlightened pers- person's perspective and that is the answer adi shanta from you are in from the from eternity to eternity you are free of samsara this goes back to the seventh mantra in the first chapter shantam shivam advaitam prapanchopashamam shantam shivam prapanchopashamam the quiescent silence of the universe which is shantam freedom from sorrow you are free of sorrow and suffering when all the time when you think you are suffering when you think you are being chased by a lion on the plains of africa and you're thinking why me i am a monk what harm have i done to anybody to be chased by a lion uh, why this terrible end is coming even if you are torn apart by that lion on the plains of africa and you die unmourned nothing has at, at all happened to you true or not and when i wake up from the dream i would say yes absolutely true and here from godapada's perspective you are completely untouched by samsara even when you are experiencing samsara at its worst today i was walking in the park i saw this gentleman being wheeled along in a wheelchair and obviously he had a stroke he could hardly he couldn't move he was just lying on the wheelchair like this and i think family or somebody was one gentleman was wheeling him along in the park not only could he not move he could not speak he could only grunt like animalistic grunts to express the man with him understood what he wanted even at that stage when the body is like that devastated and there inwardly you should say serenely adi shanta there is no samsara here at all can you do that godapada says absolutely and with the greatest ease adi shanta why anutpannaha he is famous non origination because you have never become a jiva never really 
gone to the plains of Africa, never become that Swami running in the plains. None of that has ever arisen, though you experience it. Though now you are experiencing uh, this devastated, paralyzed, stroke-ridden stroke body uh, and a grim life and death ahead of you, being wheeled along, can't express. None of it has originated. It continues to be consciousness and nothing apart from consciousness. Unlimited non-dual consciousness alone shines as all of this. Anutpanna, non-originated. Prakritya sunirvritaha. Another beautiful thing. But yet the appearances are there. If body is ill, financial ruin is there, society is in trouble, my life is going to the dogs. So these are, I'm, I admit it's an appearance to consciousness, but it's there. He says, even there, sunirvitaha, at no point do they touch you. You are completely detached from all of that. Detached means, they are, they, you need to touch, to have relation, to contact. You need two things. The real and the unreal at no point come in touch. The rope never comes in touch with the poisonous snake. The desert never comes in touch with the water of the mirage. Similarly, even though whole of samsara is appearing to you in its worst form, none of it ever touches you. He says, Prakritya sunirvita. By its very nature, not by an effort, by its very nature it does not touch you. Sarve dharma samabhinna. All the jivas, all sentient beings are same. Sama as pure consciousness. Abhinna, they are non-dual, non-different. Then he uses a beautiful phrase to round up the teaching. Ajam samyam visharadam. Ajam, non-originating. Samyam, the same homogeneous consciousness, one ocean of existence consciousness bliss. Visharadam, most holy, holy of holies. Who is that? That's you. Ajam shantam visharadam. The non-originated, uh, non Ever uh, uh, samyam, ajam shamyam visaradam, ever homogeneous, ever pure consciousness, whether in deep sleep, whether waking appears to you, whether um, dream appears, whether it's birth or whether it's death, whether it's disease or health, gain or loss, you are exactly the same consciousness everywhere. And most holy, visharadam, this is, this is the source of all sacredness and holiness. I'll just end with what one sadhu is to tell us, I'm reminded of that. Uh, Lakshman Dasji and Gangotri, often he would teach us this, uh, this Ashtavakra and once in a while he would smile and look at us and say, badi ulti darshan hai Mahatmaji. This is a very paradoxical philosophy, O monks. Tum jano ya na jano, tum mano ya na mano, tum hi Ram. Whether you know it or not, whether you accept it or not, you are Rama, you are God. Yes, we'll stop here. Let me see. Are there comments or questions? Nathan? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Pranam Maharaj. Namaskar. Uh, just a quick question about deep sleep. Uh, I think you mentioned a couple of times that there are two possibilities in Brahman. One is that something will appear or something will not appear. Yes. And uh, something appearing is, of course, a waking slash dreaming. Something not appearing is the deep sleep. Yes. So can we safely say that deep sleep is what it is like to be Brahman without any appearance? 
deep sleep is what it is like to be Brahman without any appearance? No. Because what we consider to be deep sleep is in, from the perspective of ignorance. Enlightened people do not see deep sleep in that way. For us, deep sleep means, when I look back upon it, there was a period of blankness and maybe restfulness. Is that Brahman? No, no, no. When the enlightened person looks back upon it, he says the same blaze of consciousness which is there right now. And the same there also. So, are we saying the enlightened person's deep sleep experience is different? No, his knowledge is different. Swami Turiyanji was once asked, So, don't you sleep like us? He said, not quite. That's recorded. <laughs> so, the reason I was asking this, is I wasn't talking about us reflecting back upon deep sleep in the waking state while we are in the deep sleep. Hmm. Is that, while we are in the deep sleep, is that what it is like to be Brahman without an appearance? No, no, that. no. While we are in deep sleep, uh, there is no way of discussing that because only way you can discuss that is to reflect back upon it from the waking state. Whereas, see, when we say we are in deep sleep, even that wording the enlightened person would reject. From an enlightened person's perspective, deep sleep, waking and dreaming cycle back and forth in that enlightened being, in the radiance of consciousness. It cycles uh, between manifestation and non-manifestation, from abhyakta to vyakta and vyakta to abhyakta. Okay, is there anybody else? Yeah. Um, no one else, just a short comment from Prabir Babu. Why is there a difference between enlightened so, people? So, Nitin, we can take it up tomorrow again. Just hold on to that thought. I just, we have run really over time. Oh, um, okay. Um, That's it, Beautiful, uh, enlightened person. But I really liked these uh, wonderful descriptions from Gaudapada when he says Adi Buddha, when he says Adi Shanta. And this is a very honest description, just if you take the pure Turiya, the pure absolute perspective. Um, why is the difference between enlightened people? Think about it. What do we consider an enlightened being to be? That body-mind is still there and we feel that this person is now enlightened. From the enlightened person's perspective, if you ask honestly, what are you? If you ask who are you, you'll say, I'm Ramakrishna, I'm Vivekananda. No, no, honestly, what are you? I'm Brahman. Chidananda Rupa Shivoham. But when we interact with them, we interact through the uh, body-mind of that person. And each body-mind has its own history. They look different, they have different education, language, the mind has been equipped and the furniture of the mind is different in each case. So, the enlightenment shines through differently in different uh, enlightened beings. Yeah. Um, one more. The enlightened mind body is different, but the enlightened, are the enlightened the mind body? The enlightened are not mind body. Alright, let me end with this thing, which uh, directly from Swami Bhuteshanandaji who was the twelfth president of the order. We were discussing this very subject. The monks were there and they are questioning him. Remember, he was over 98 years old at that time. And we considered him to be an enlightened being. So, some of the senior monks were discussing. I was there also. At, at, I was a young novice at the back of the room. So, how does an enlightened being feel? But one of the monks was asking, Swami, but we see that the enlightened person is walking and talking and recognizes different things. How is it that you know, he is seeing only Brahman everywhere? 
just like uh, the rest of us. And then Swami Bhuteshanji said, that's what you see. In Bengali he said, tumra dekcho. And then the Swami pounced. He said, ah, but what does the enlightened being see? That was the question of the questioner. What does the enlightened being see? What is it like? What does the enlightened being see? And his, uh, Swami Bhuteshanji's answer immediately. I saw that it came without any reflection, any stopping. Straight away from a place of experience. Who sees? Who sees? Question was, that's what I'm, what we want to know. What does the enlightened one see? In Bengali, And uh, his answer was, We think there is a separate individual there, in that particular body-mind, whom we call the, the Jivan Mukta, the enlightened being. The enlightened person does not think of himself at all in that way. So, we'll leave it at that. Okay. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu